welcome to the Ninja Lane podcast, the official podcast of NinjaLane.com. I'm Dennis Garcia, your host. With me today, I have Darren McCain. Hey, guys. In this episode, we're going to continue our discussion on what makes a hardware review site. I actually get Darren to overclock a little bit. <laughs> Finally. And we look at the MOA Grand Finals and the impact of voltage adjustments on video card overclocking. In our last episode, we talked about the origins of Ninja Lane and a little bit about what is a hardware review site. I'd like to come back to that this episode and talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of how Ninja Lane works, how we get products, and really if there's any money to be made. Well, that sounds like fun. So what is it you want to know? Well, I think the readers really just want to know, how does a reviewer on a site like Ninja Lane, like me, for example, get paid? Well, you don't. <laughs> That's right. That's not exactly true either, because the product that you review, you get to keep. And at that point, you get to kind of do whatever you want with it. You can use it in your personal system, or you can sell it for a profit, or give it to a friend, give it as a giveaway, or gift it back to Ninja Lane, and we use it as a promotional item to help promote and get more readers at ninjalane.com. So we talked about this a little last time, but I think it's important to point out that we really aren't in this for the money, although it would be nice to be making a good living doing this. My Ninja Lane Ferrari just hasn't arrived in the mail. But we're really here, I think Dennis and I both, because we're passionate about the hardware and we really enjoy talking about it. And getting the products, in some cases, is just a bonus. It helps keep the machines current and helps us, you know, really to stay on the cutting edge of what we're talking about, which helps us to be more topical in our reviews. So, in short, there's not a lot of money to be made at this level, at least. But how does the site survive? We talked a little bit about the site income last time, but I wanted you to kind of talk a little more for the readers, let them see behind the curtain how the site survives. How does it make money? Well, it's probably better to talk about that as a generalization of how sites like NinjaLane.com, you know, hardware review sites, make their money. Money is made based on page views. And of course, the more popular an article is, the more page views you're going to get to your site. And the page views support banner ads. So the more page views you have, the more you can charge for a certain banner ad or a certain ad space to a certain manufacturer that wants to be on there. So that's why we see all these sites, I don't know, going overboard on the advertising with the Google words and a million banners and what, like a paragraph of content on every page? <laughs> Something like that. And the ones that annoy me the most are the article banner ad interject in the middle of an article that looks like the article which is really just an ad, and then more of the article. That's really trying to maximize and take advantage of what page views or what little page views you have in trying to get the most money out of it. Well, and we haven't talked about click-throughs. Well, no, the, the click-through aspect is really kind of a product of the banner. So we have a certain amount of page views, but there's a certain amount of clicks that's usually associated with that. And it's never really 1%. It's like 0.5% or something like that. But that is what advertisers look for in terms of ROI, getting the most from their banner. So this is the internet equivalent of how many subscribers does your magazine have? <laughs> exactly. Now here's where it gets interesting. How does a site go and generate more page views? Oh, yes. How do they do that? Think of, say, the National Enquirer. Okay. Think of Star Magazine. Gotcha. What do those things have in common? Well, they'll do really anything to grab your attention, won't they? 
Yeah, you know, you, you look at ABC News. It's like there's a flood somewhere in the Midwest. Nobody's drowned. There's no <laughs> houses impacted. But maybe a cow got wet. It's content. People generate content. It doesn't necessarily equate to anything, but it's content. And in terms of a hardware review site, what kind of content do people want to see? Well, you want to see the hot new products, of course. Yeah. So what happens if that hot new product oh, hasn't been released yet? Oh, yeah. Everyone wants to see that content. Yeah, and that's kind of the scoop. You know, it's like the scoop on a famous one that just kind of happened not too long ago, the GTX 660 Tie. Oh, yeah, which we just talked about. Yeah, we just kind of talked about that. Now, NVIDIA had admitted that when the GTX 670 was released... Within a week, people were posting on their Facebook page asking about a GTX 660. Is there going to be a mid-range equivalent of this card being released? This was long before anything had been spec'd out, long before chip samples had been sent to the manufacturer, and really long before any editors had been briefed. So really, this was user-generated thought. Right, not even on the roadmap at that point. Right. So that really kind of got some interest. And that's something that marketing folks love to have because they can play on that. They can build on it. They can use this apprehension of the community to build intensity into a next product release and be able to use that as a way to get people interested. Well, especially when it's a hotly anticipated product like a new tie. In terms of a hardware review site, being able to get specs beforehand, getting benchmarks beforehand, will get you that intensity directed directly at you before anybody else ha can. So there's a couple of sites out there. Tweaktown and eTechnics, for instance, are very vocal about the fact that NVIDIA doesn't talk to them. They ask about some of the new products that are coming out, but NVIDIA has closed the door on them, don't want to talk to them at all. They've written a couple of articles about this, which will be linked in the show notes. You can kind of read it for yourself. It kind of reads as a a little girl with a skinned knee just kind of screaming about, <laughs> oh no, my knee is all bloody. So without reading those articles now, what are they complaining about? Well, they're complaining about, one, how NVIDIA is not talking to them, but the reason why is because they leaked information. You know, this is NDA information from NVIDIA. Now, the thing that Tweaktown was talking about is that they aren't under an NDA because they got their product not from NVIDIA, but from another source. Oh, so they found a way around the rules. Yeah, kind of fudging the rules. You know, the, the NDA process for any sort of product review is kind of split between a gentleman's sort of agreement, saying if you are going to attend this conference, then you are under and bound by our NDA rules. So far, I've never really seen a sheet saying what those NDA rules are, but it's kind of common sense. It's like, what we're going to tell you, you can't tell anybody else until such and such a date. Well, and reviewers really want to get that information in advance so that we can build those articles and have them ready for those release days. It really is critical to get that information before they want it out in the public. Yeah, but the important part is that you don't release it before that date. Now, a couple of these other sites that we've already mentioned, they get the product through their own little channels and somehow go and create an article with performance numbers, no pictures, mind you. So how do we know these performance numbers are actually real? And they release that a week, two weeks in advance before 
the official launch. But it doesn't even really matter if it's real or if they have pictures because the demand for that information is out there. I mean, I'm always looking for the hot news. That's the important part about creating page views. They're going to be getting a whole bunch of page views of people curious about it and reading through it and basically getting the information beforehand. So you talked a little bit about NVIDIA's opinion of that, but how does that really reflect on their relationship? That's tarnished the relationship to the point where NVIDIA won't talk to them anymore. It's kind of like you broke the rules, so we're not going to support you breaking the rules any further. Now, of course, since they... Their argument is that since NVIDIA doesn't talk to them anymore, they have to go through their own channels and get their own product. In my past, when I haven't gotten a product to review, I go out in the retail channel, I'll go and buy one, I'll do the review myself, and then send it back to the manufacturer. That's how I make a lot of my contacts. But in this case, that was after the launch, so it's somewhat approved. Now, had I done that beforehand, maybe had a friend at the factory and they let me in so I could go check out their test bench and run some benchmarks and record the results, that's not official. That's not an approved method of getting this information. That's where kind of the morals of the hardware review community come into play. You know, if you have good morals, you're going to be following the rules and doing things the right way. If you kind of have bad morals and are doing this just for the money, just for the page views, just for fame and fortune, you're going to do whatever you need to to get that information out regardless of who it hurts and how it impacts the community. It doesn't really sound like that sustainable a model, honestly. It seems to be working though, but then again, these sites also have stack banners, AdWords, pop-ups everywhere, so. Well, it's nice to see that not every site has to do that to survive, but I think that underlines the reason why you have to have a passion and a niche and a target audience that you're trying to reach, because trying to grab everybody doesn't seem like the right answer. During the month of September, Gigabyte had another classic challenge on HardwareBot. And the prizes, now this is the best part about these classic challenges, is that Gigabyte gives away some pretty great prizes. And the top prize for first place and a random drawing was their new Z77X UP7, which is the overclocking motherboard. Yeah, and it's very nice. Now, of course, to win one of these motherboards, you need to enter. And I thought that this would be a great opportunity to get Darren... Mr. Co-host here, (laughs) involved and back into the overclocking scene. So to be clear, I do still overclock. (laughs) Kinda. Kinda. Well. Come on. All right. So I have a 2600K that I've had for some time, and it runs very solid and stable at 4.2. 4.2. 4.2. 4.2 is not an overclock. Come on, 4.2 is an overclock. All right. So what is stock on that processor? Yeah, it's 3.4 gigahertz. Right, so 4.2 is respectable. It's yeah, on true. air. That's true, and some motherboards will go and have an auto overclock where it boosts it up, and it'll be at 3.8 gigahertz. Mm-hmm. So 4.2 is just kind of a bump from there. I think it's pretty solid, and it runs the games great. And to be clear, my focus is on gaming, and right now... Hardware is definitely ahead of the software, so there's not a real reason for me to run it faster normally. That's true. Now, you did want to upgrade your system. I did. And I think we got you into the Sniper 3, which, since it's outside of the system, let's go and overclock that thing. That's right. So I'm running a Sniper 2 now in my system, and I am upgrading to the Sniper 3, and I thought that I would do that 
kind of as an excuse to move to Windows 8. So the timing is good. Timing's good. So what do we do? Well, I had you bring your system over because we needed to have some of your components, and we're going to do a paired benchmarking session. The rest of the system that we were going to overclock for me includes a 7970, and it's a stock 7970 from MSI, I believe. MSI, that's right. A set of 16 gigs of RAM, the Sniper RAM from G-Skill. That's actually some pretty good memory. It was 2133 at Cast 9, so it's respectable. One of the best uh, four-stick kits I could find at the time, actually. And it runs great. All in all, the system outperforms really everything I throw at it. That's true. To enter the contest, we needed to run two benchmarks. The first one was 3DMark01, and this was a low-clock challenge that limited the CPU to 5 gigahertz. The other benchmark was SuperPi32M, which is more of a stability benchmark that's going to focus on clock speed and memory tuning within the system. So my 2600K is a little bit long in the tooth, and it's got me looking at an Iverbridge processor, maybe sometime soon. But the 2600 also has a reputation for being quite an overclocking processor. So we had some high hopes. Yeah, we had some high hopes, yes. Now, maybe you can describe how it was that we set up your system for this overclocking session. We took the motherboard out of the system. And some of you are familiar from the videos that we've posted or the pictures of Dennis's fancy, I don't even know what to call it, super cooling refrigeration monster. (laughs) That's a single stage phase cooler. That's right, the single stage unit. So we took uh, the motherboard, the new motherboard, placed it on Dennis's overclocking uh, rig, his platform, and did some insulation using the classic eraser technique. So my first time at that kind of cool to insulate the processor now the needed eraser insulation is pretty simple to do it's kind of you're taking little chunks of eraser and you're filling in the gaps to keep the water out of the the vital components now, now, of course i didn't want to ruin my new motherboard so no no when you were doing the insulation kind of describe what it was that i i kind of had you do so the goal is to isolate that processor just as dennis mentioned with a nice ring around the socket So you want to get a nice even layer about the same height as the socket itself. The theory being that when you place the heat sink on top of the processor that you've got a nice solid sort of a gasket around it. And to aid that, we also used a moisture wicking cloth. And I'm not sure what the cloth is. It's actually some blue shop towels is what I I had you use. Uh And what I do is I'll take, I'll cut some strips that are about three inches wide and fold them in half and then push those over top of the threaded rods that the phase head attaches to. Mm -hmm. I think we have pictures, so if this doesn't make sense, you'll have to check those out in the forum and the show notes. Definitely. But it wasn't a difficult process, despite my being a little bit nervous about getting it right the first time. I've done a lot of overclocking in the past, but it's never been with any super cooling. It's always been water cooling or just your standard over-the-air. Now, when we were setting up the rest of the system, I only had you use two sticks of memory. That's correct. And that is mostly because two sticks of memory is easier to get stable at higher frequencies than trying to get that same clock to run across four sticks of memory. Well, and since we didn't need the extra memory, there's no reason to put those extra points of failure in there at all. Definitely. So anyway, system built, we fired it up with a clean, what we call, what, a lab installation of Windows XP? Yeah, it's a pretty trimmed down version of Windows XP that disabled a lot of the services and 
kind of turned off a lot of the strange notifications in the background so that it was just the OS without anything else interfering in the background. Mm -hmm. I, of course, downloaded the latest video driver, and really that's about all you're doing. Now, to be fair, the drive is a Velociraptor, so it's a quick drive. But I think in these two benchmarks, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, we're not doing anything that really has a read-write element to it. No, the benchmarks don't read from the drive. Well, I take that back. SuperPy32M, when it's generating the keys that it's going to be calculating, it will spawn them into memory and then save them to a disk. Now, that time frame, some people arguably say that you know there's a couple of milliseconds of it saving to the disk, so you need to have fast disk access. But mm -hmm. Admittedly, I've never seen it, and it's usually kind of a benchmark variance. The important thing with using the Velociraptor over, say, an SSD that would be a lot faster is that SSDs are really fragile when it comes to base clock overclocking, especially with Sandy Bridge and Sandy Bridge E. If you get over like 105, 106, sometimes this SSD will get corrupted, whereas if you have a rotational drive, it doesn't uh, have those problems. Well, now I know a lot of that has been resolved, or at least that's the rumor, but I haven't had any luck talking Dennis into an SSD. <laughs> so I have a couple, but we set them aside, and that is why. But anyway, we got the machine set up, threw some thermal probes on it, and got busy. Yeah, so the what was the overclock that we settled on for SuperPy32? Well, I mentioned earlier that the 2600K has a reputation for being a really solid overclocking processor. In fact, many serious overclockers, the competition overclockers, tell you that that is the primary processor to buy if that's your goal. So we had hoped to get, what, 5.6? 5, 5. 5.5 5. 6? 5 or 5.6 is really what we were shooting for. And of course, in my optimism, I had to have probably the best processor out there. So I was hoping for at least a 5.5. 5. <laughs> but as luck would have it, my processor is a pretty standard middle-of-the-road processor. Yeah, it's pretty average. Uh -huh. And that's not such a bad thing because we ended up at, what was it, 5.57? No, I think it was more like 5.28. So we ended up at 5.27. And to do that, we did some typical manipulations. But this is a good opportunity for Dennis to, again, reiterate. The Sandy Bridge processor, the i7 in general, kind of harkens back, and we've talked a lot about this, to an older style of overclocking that is primarily bus speed manipulated. There's two versions of the Sandy Bridge processor. The first one doesn't allow multiplier adjustments beyond the turbo frequency. And if you have the K edition, like what Darren has, then you can change the multipliers, which is where the bulk of the overclocking is going to come from. Now, the base clock is multiplied in there as well. So if you have a 101 on the base clock times your multiplier, that's going to equal your CPU speed. Now that base clock is the entire system clock. So that's going to increase your PCI Express frequency. It's going to increase the frequency to the SATA controller and also to the network controller. And if the components are weak, they will actually stop working. Well, fortunately, we had really pretty good components. The hard break, if you will, at the 5.27 was actually a bit of a disappointment, I think. Well, for me, it was. Well, and that's just the nature of the CPU and also of the motherboard, because mm -hmm. the Sniper 3 was not really designed for extreme overclocking like what we were trying to do. That's true. There was a few settings in the BIOS that I was looking for that should have allowed us to get past 5 gigahertz a lot better, and those were just non-existent. Mm -hmm. 
in reality, the processor might have a little more overhead. But all of that is really pretty moot because, as we mentioned before, this was a classic challenge. So the clock speed was limited to 5, five gigahertz. 5 gigahertz. We set it back down or, and tried to find our best possible performance at the 5 gigahertz level. And that's where we started running our 3D Mark 01. 3D Mark 01 is one of HardwareBot's video card benchmarks, but since it's an older game based on DirectX 8, it's highly CPU dependent. Now with the Gigabyte Classic Challenge, they've limited it to 5 gigahertz, which was pretty easy to attain with any sort of a Sandy Bridge system. That really levels the playing field to be dependent on system tweaking and also what video card you have and how fast you can make your video card run. Well, I like my video card, and it is a pretty high-end card, but it's also a reference design. That really shouldn't matter too much since we're going to keep it under air for the most part. Right. But there's still some tweaks that you can do to get the most out of it. With the professional edition of 3D Mark 01, you are allowed to run the benchmarks in any order you want. And that's key to getting the best score. Now, it turns out that if you run all of the low-detail benchmarks first, after a fresh reboot, you get a higher score in frames per second for those benchmarks. And then you can go back and run the high-detail ones. So that's kind of what we did with your 7970. You know, we ran it start to finish, and we came up with a score of like 86,000 marks. And then we rebooted and then ran the low ones first and then the high ones after that. And what score did we get? Well, it wasn't good. <laughs> no, it wasn't good at all. So at this point, we uh, took a look at what the competition looked like and decided that maybe we ought to take advantage of some of the better hardware in the lab. Not that I'm disappointed with my machine, it just isn't the overclocking monster that we'd all hoped. <laughs> Thank God it's a gaming machine. Yeah. So I was generous enough to let you use the... I like to think of it as my 7970 Lightning. Yeah, I know. You like to... <laughs> I think you tried to walk out the door with it, really. <laughs> yeah, and that's a tremendous difference between that card and my card. Not just because it's got a cool aftermarket fan heatsink set up on it, but also because it's not a reference card. And we are allowed to run some higher clocks on that. We can tweak the voltages a bit. The cooling's a lot better, so we have a better heat capacity with it. And it just it's kind of all around better card. But you pay the price, if you can still find one, of course. Yeah, that's true. So what kind of clocks did we settle on? We ran the same batch of benches in the same order, which I still think is kind of crazy, but it works. And we ended up with almost 94,000 3D marks, 93,932 to be precise. That's actually pretty respectable. I was impressed, hence the reason that card is coming home with me. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, we took that score and we looked back at the Gigabyte Classic Challenge and found that the score that we had gotten was getting us about one point. And that is really because of the hardware that we chose. A lot of the guys that were... Further along, they had 15,000 marks, but mm -hmm. they were also using liquid nitrogen and also the GTX 580, which has been notably to run a lot better in 3D Mark 01. Now, I thought, because I was running a lot of Gigabyte products, that that might help with the Gigabyte Classic Challenge, and it might have if I'd have had a little bit better processor. Yeah, but really, this is more about the experience and I kind of want to get your overall experience of this process in general. 
So I have to admit that I've been over here a lot and done some super clocking on your equipment <laughs> and never really felt very anxious about what might happen. But when it's your own gear on the bench, it tends to get you a little more interested, maybe. Yeah, I, I did see you make a little jump when we got a blue screen there. <laughs> yeah, so truth be told is I was, of course, a little disappointed that I didn't have the best processor and video card that money can buy. But that's not really a surprise. But the good news is that the overclocking process on the Sandy Bridge was actually much easier than I expected. I mean, really, we didn't do much with the voltage, and we were able to dial in the front side bus very easily, uh, you know, with a little help from the single-stage cooler, to what I think is a pretty respectable score. And in fact, I think that achieving even maybe five could be done with a pretty good aftermarket cooler or water cooler, no single-stage involved. However, I won't be trying that anytime soon. <laughs> so to me, uh, it was a lot of fun and very cool. And the reality is, despite all of the different attempts at trying to get things faster, we did the whole process in, what, less than four hours? Yeah, we spent four hours start to finish. And if we had spent another couple of hours, we probably could have tuned your 3D Mark 01 score quite a bit more because we would just dial in our memory timings a little bit and then tweak the base clock slightly and... You know, it's those micro adjustments in the video card clocks because, you know, every megahertz on a video card will translate into more frames in a benchmark. Mm -hmm. And if you have a lot of time to tweak and a lot of patience and kind of know what to look for, you can dial that in and get a pretty good score. So you might be asking now, well, how did we do in the competition? And the truth of the matter is, eh, it wasn't really worth the submission. <laughs> September was a good month for overclocking competitions. There was the Gigabyte Classic Challenge that Darren and I just talked about, and the MOA Grand Finals in Taiwan had occurred at the end of the month. Now that's a big one. That's one of the premier overclocking competitions that's still around, and it took a whole year to get everybody qualified to go. Of course, the America's Qualifier was the one that I competed in early this year, and then it went to Asia Pacific and Europe. And out of that, they got 16 teams together, to overclock on some of the latest MSI hardware. The benchmarks that they were running to determine the winner were the same as the regional qualifier, so we had SuperPi 32M, 3D Mark 03, and 3D Mark 11. And that really gives you a nice cross-section of system performance and also video card performance. Now, sadly, I was not able to attend the competition in person, but I did get to watch it over live stream. Now, of course, as a live stream, it's kind of like watching TV, so you are at the whim of the cameraman, in determining what it is that you get to see. It might be some guy frustrated and trying to get things to work and somebody else is just kind of staring at the screen and pouring LN2 every once in a while. So now this is in Taiwan. Yes, this is in Taiwan. And we have about a 12-hour time difference from Boise, Idaho to Taipei, Taiwan. The competition started at 9 a.m., which is around 7 p.m. here. And I was able to watch the opening ceremony the first two hours of the SuperPi 32M and as they were setting up for 3D Mark 03. Now, one thing I noticed when they were doing 3D Mark 03 was that everybody was using a GTX 680 Lightning, but they were doing hard mods on this video card. As we know from any of the Lightning cards, they are designed so that you don't have to do those hard mods. So that seems a little odd. What gives? 
Well, at first I thought that they were doing a mod for like a cold bug because the GTX 680 was kind of plagued by cold bugs just randomly. You'd get a card that would work great at sub-zero temperatures and then you would have another one that might only run negative 30. You can modify the card to get past that cold bug to a certain degree. It's not going to magically make it a better GPU, but you'll get a little bit more performance out of it. And that's kind of what I figured it was. But then afterwards... I kind of noticed that there was a lot of these overclocking cards, not MSI, but like the EVGA and even the Gigabyte, where they were removing the voltage adjustments. So I'm thinking there was a bigger story there. Now, by removing the voltage adjustments, you're talking about a driver? No, it's more like a hardware sort of thing. The voltage adjustments are usually by the BIOS, and then you can control that in the software. Oh, okay. Now, with EVGA, it's an EV bot, which is a little hardware plug that will allow you to adjust the voltages, just like if you had a trimmer on board. But you can also do that through software, just not to the same level. So it sounds like these guys are really pushing the hardware. How did it end up? Well, Team USA came in second, led by Splave and ROM Dominance. And those are names that I hear a lot, so that's good to hear them up on top. Yeah, they were the... Well, Splave was the guy that led... He was the first seed in the America's Qualifier, took first in every one of the benchmarks. Nice! he, He was dedicated, that's for sure. Yeah, well, not only that, but great hardware. Who took the top spot? That was the Korean team, OC Windforce and Little Boy. And then in third place was the Polish team, which was Rebia and Joanna. Well, congratulations to the teams for some pretty impressive achievements in the overclocking. But I want to take another look, if we can, at the volt modding that you talked about, because we haven't heard much about volt modding lately. Well, I think... The reason being is that so many manufacturers are providing products that allow you to do that without modifying physically the video card. Now, you mentioned the Afterburner software, and I think that's a great example of the manufacturers providing a conduit for overclocking that is, I think, really very easy for just the average Joe to use. Yeah. Now, the Afterburner works a lot like a system BIOS on a motherboard. So when you have a system bias that is what controls the memory interaction with the processor, processor interaction with the the PCI Express bus. Now on the video card, that bias will do the same thing. It interfaces the GPU with the memory, but it also opens up an API point to Afterburner. So Afterburner can go in and change frequencies, core frequencies, memory frequencies, and if they allow it, they can change voltages and they can change if a card is cold bugged or not, and they can increase the range of allowable voltages. So how important is that? If you're going to be doing LN2 cooling or anything with like chilled water, the extra voltages will allow you to get a higher clock speed because you're going to reach a certain frequency. Like for instance, the GTX 680 will go about 1300 megahertz on stock voltages. And that's the ones that NVIDIA recommends. Now, if you can bump that up a couple of points, you can get to 14, 1500 megahertz. Or if you are really talented, you can do something like Kingpin and go 2000 megahertz. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? I know we talked about, uh, when we were talking about overclocking my system, about how much benefit you get from even a single megahertz on a video card. So I guess every bit counts. When you're trying for a top score, yes, every bit does count. Especially in a competition like MOA, where First and second were separated by 200 marks. So why take it away? I'm thinking what NVIDIA was trying to do was make overclocking an elitist thing again. 
So the manufacturers don't allow voltage tweaking in their products so that the people that are going to be doing this extreme overclocking are going to be voiding the warranty and not being able to send the product back for replacement. Oh, that makes sense. A lot less burned out cards from a lot of the idiot overclockers. Yeah, that's true. And truth be told, the air coolers that most manufacturers put on cards, you know, we have the, the Twin Frozier 4 and we also have the, the Windforce from Gigabyte. Those are pretty good coolers. But when you start tweaking the voltages beyond what NVIDIA recommends, they're going to be running a lot hotter. And if they're inside a system, it could be just gaming and you want to have, you know, a 1400 megahertz overclock and get really smooth frames and battlefield three but eventually it will burn out and it will burn out faster than you might intend and at that point you're going to send it back for a replacement now that makes sense but how are they getting around it for competitions kind of the same way they've done for years by doing hardware mods to the video card and at that point they're tweaking the voltage regulators to pump in more voltage to the gpu by using a trimmer and then a voltmeter to determine what the actual voltage is at the end this is where cards like the MSI GTX 680 Lightning and the EVGA Classified and even the Super Overclocks from Gigabyte are really important for the enthusiast community. They may not allow voltage adjustments through software, but the hardware is there and available so that extreme overclockers can get in there, do their hardware mod, and have a really powerful PWM for these massive overclocks. There's a few more steps you need to take, and it's kind of removing overclocking from the average Joe back up into the elitist community of, you know, modders that are going to be breaking out their solder pencils and don't mind voiding a warranty here and there. So all that sounds really interesting, but the end result is I don't have any real desire to do that sort of stuff. So I'm not probably going to be interested in that card or overclocking it, at least if it's going to require me to void my warranty. What's that going to do to the market? I don't think it's going to do anything good to the market, that's for sure. I mean, we've already seen it in the motherboard space where a lot of these high-end overclocking motherboards are hard, really hard to find. You know, they might be available for the first couple of months, but then after that, they've either sold out because they didn't make a lot of them, or they're pulled because the sales team doesn't know how to market them to the community. I think the same will be for video cards as well, whereas if people aren't going to be buying these cards... And aside from being hot clocked, there's no other benefit for a person like you, the average overclocker. These manufacturers aren't going to spend the money in the R&D effort to go and build them. Let's hope that trend doesn't continue because I think much like the car industry where the high-end racing and Formula One technology trickles down to the average Joe's car, really the competition in the overclocking space and the enthusiasts is I think what's bringing these new technologies down to the regular overclockers and gamers like myself. In the end, we just need this competition to keep the technology fresh. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes. If you have any questions, drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com. To stay up to date on the latest at Ninja Lane, please subscribe to our RSS, now available on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, or join us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2012. Thanks for listening. <laughs>